reminder of a higher throne, a place where God rules and reigns. I'm reminded of something that Paul said. We're going to be thinking a lot again tonight about Paul. He said, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Life here is brilliant because I have Christ, but when God takes me, it only gets better. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for a throne, a place where you reign and your son sits at your right hand. Thank you that this world, this confusing, noisy, and sometimes messy place where we have to live is a world over which you rule and reign. Lord, we pray that you would meet with us tonight again in your word, that you'd speak to us, that you'd teach us from your throne, teach us things that will help us to live well for you today and in the weeks and months that lie ahead. Lord, we pray that your throne would be at the very center of our lives as you prompt us by your Spirit. Amen. Please have that passage open before you because we'll be sticking to it very, very closely this evening. Acts chapter 21. We begin there at verse 27 of that chapter on page 1118. You'd imagine that the most strident opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ would come from pagans, uh, from people who are outside of the church Sometimes that's the case, but not always. You wouldn't expect that opposition to the gospel would swell up from within the established church, uh, but yet often that's exactly what happens. Oftentimes those who claim to know God, those who imagine themselves to be His people on His side, are the people who are most resistant to God's actual presence among them. And the opposite can be true as well. Sometimes it's people who don't know God at all. Those who maybe hear of the gospel for the first time and hear it in a fresh way, they are the people who we find open to God and what he's saying to them. Although this might seem quite surprising to us, it shouldn't if we take God's word seriously. Because this is what God's word teaches. And it's certainly the story of our chapter, our passage here this evening. The Jews in Jerusalem, the so-called people of God, are the ones who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. It takes a pagan Roman governor to prevent them from killing Paul, God's messenger. In tonight's passage, we find Paul once again facing Jewish opposition, and once again he's arrested for his own safety. That's happened to him before. And the background to this arrest was found in the passage you dealt with earlier in chapter 21, the passage that Daryl shared with you last week. Paul's completed by now the third missionary journey, as we call it. And despite a number of warnings not to go to Jerusalem, that's exactly what Paul does. He says he's ready to face whatever might happen to him there. At first, we discover that he's well-received in the city. There's a genuine excitement among Jewish Christians to hear 
of, of how God has been at work among the Gentiles. The church among the Jews has been growing too, but it's populated by now with people who don't know Paul. Paul's missionary journey's lasted a long, long time. He's been out and about for, I don't know, 15 or more years uh, traveling and, and far from Jerusalem most of the time. So these people don't know Paul. They know him only by rumor. And the rumor that's going around is that Paul has been turning Jews away from their Jewish traditions. So James and the other elders come up with a plan. Paul, since we know that you haven't turned your back on your Jewish heritage and traditions, why don't you make a public stance that will demonstrate this to other people who don't know you as well as we do? Why don't you take this public vow to demonstrate your solidarity with Jewish believers? That way, those people who've heard these rumors about you will see that they aren't true. They'll see that you're not out to bash the Jewish law. So Paul, in a great act of humility, I think, goes along with the plan that James and the other elders present to him. The biblical commentator F.F. Bruce puts it nicely. He says that a truly freed spirit, such as Paul's, is not in bondage to its own freedom. Paul is free enough to not feel that he needs to push his freedom. He's free enough, actually, to be willing to forgo his freedom. He's free enough not to care whether he's free or not. By the time we get to our passage this evening, ironically, it's Paul's willingness to accommodate himself to the the Jewish sensibilities of the people around him that leads to his arrest. You see, he's in the temple. He's completing just at the final step of this ritual that he'd agreed with James and with the other elders to undertake. It's Pentecost. There are lots of Jews from all over the world in Jerusalem. And there are some Jews from the province of Asia There are people who have maybe encountered Paul on his journeys in those areas, and they recognize Paul, and immediately they accuse him. They accuse him actually of two slightly separate things. Firstly, they accuse him of teaching all men everywhere against our people, our law, and this place. Now, that's actually a misunderstanding of Paul. In fact, it's hugely ironic when you think about it. Here's Paul trying to fulfill a ritual of the Jewish law precisely because he wants to show solidarity with the Jewish people, and he does so in the Jewish temple. Everything about his behavior is respectful of the Jewish people, their law, and the temple. And yet, Paul stands accused. Paul here is being accused in much the same way as Stephen was before him, and of Jesus was before them, all of them accused of not taking the law, the Jewish people, and the temple seriously. But the truth is that Jesus took the law and the temple and the Jewish people very seriously. The thing that people found challenging about Jesus is that he said that he had come to fulfill all of these things. He had said that the Jewish law, the Jewish people, and the Jewish temple all found their fulfillment in him. These things are all important, but they're important precisely because they point to Jesus. 
the controversial thing that Jesus, that Stephen, and that now Paul preach is that the law is not an end in itself. The law points to Jesus. So the first thing they accuse Paul of is a misunderstanding, but the second one is just a a plain false accusation. They accuse Paul of defiling the temple by bringing Gentile Greeks into the holy place. They've seen Paul in Jerusalem with a guy called Trophimus, the Ephesian. And whenever they see him in the temple, they assume that Paul has brought this guy into the temple with him, and they jump to their own conclusions. Now, if Paul has done this, if he's done this thing that he's been accused of here, then these folks are entirely entitled to be outraged. We've got to be clear about how this temple works. In the Jewish temple of that day, Gentiles were allowed to to visit. They were allowed into the very outside court, the court of the Gentiles. If you went on towards the center of the temple, the next court was called the court of women, where Jewish women could enter. And if you went on, there was another separation and then a court where only Jewish men could enter and so on until it was only priests and the high priest. Between the court of the Gentiles and the court of women, there was a barrier And it's had a placard on it with a warning. Archaeologists have dug up a couple of these in the 20th century, so they're able to tell us of the exact wording of what it said on these signs. It says, No man of alien race is to go beyond this point and through the fence which goes around the temple. If anyone is taken in the act, let him know that he has himself to blame for the death penalty that follows. You walk through this barrier as a Gentile, you're a dead man. And that's understood. It was understood by the Jewish authorities, but even Rome, who didn't take seriously Jewish law, at this point they did. If a Roman citizen walked through that barrier, then the Roman authorities allowed the Jews to enforce the death penalty. That's how seriously everyone took this law. That's what Paul stands accused of here, of bringing a Gentile across this barrier. That's why the the crowd is in uproar. So Paul's been accused of two crimes. One, a misunderstanding. One is, is a plain false accusation. Trophimus isn't with him. There's no Gentile who's breached this great divide. A false accusation, a misunderstanding, but it doesn't make Paul's situation for the moment any less dangerous. A huge riot breaks out. An angry mob drags Paul out of the temple determined to kill him. Paul's probably never been closer to death than he is here. He's he's pretty close. It's a matter of timing here. If help doesn't arrive, Paul's dead. But the commander of the Roman troops responsible for policing the city, he hears the uproar He comes running with his soldiers and he rescues Paul. He has no idea what's going on, so he he reacts. He quickly arrests Paul for his own safety, and then he asks questions later to get to the bottom of the situation. When you read this account of the response of the Jews in Jerusalem to Paul, 
you get the sense that they were never going to take him seriously. They were just never going to hear him out. There was no chance. They had already decided against him. They had rushed to accuse him. They weren't interested in the truth. They knew that he was wrong and that they were right. Actually, we come here to the end of one of the long-running threads that we've seen time and time again in our study in the book of Acts. This is the last time where we're going to see open opposition of Jews against Paul. When Luke describes the events, in verse 30 he tells us that seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. There's a kind of a symbolism here with the shutting of these gates. This is a final closing of mainstream Judaism to Jesus Christ and those who bring his gospel. Jews are still going to come to faith in Jesus. Some of them will respond and find their place in the family of God. But there's not going to be, not now and not in the future, any room in the temple, in the center of the Jewish tradition for Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah of God. As far as the Jews are concerned, Jesus is not welcome. The doors are shut. The lights are off. And nobody's home. Folks, it seems to me important that we dwell on this for a moment. Why were the Jews in Jerusalem in that time so opposed to the message of Jesus? Why were the religious leaders of Jesus' own time so dead set against him? So clear that the doors of the temple of their day would be closed to Jesus too. Why is that? Isn't it because they were afraid? They thought that accepting Jesus as Messiah would destroy a way of life that was more important to them. They thought that accepting Gentiles as brothers and sisters in the faith would mean an end to all the things that they held dear. They couldn't accept the gospel of Jesus because of their own prior commitments. They were things dearer to them. So there's angry fear instead. It blinds them to the reality of Jesus. Folks, isn't it still the same today? Isn't there a danger that we miss out on what God is doing among us because we're afraid? Because we wish to cling to the things and the ways that we already know. We hear of God doing something a little bit different than what we're accustomed to. We sense God calling us to something a little bit beyond what we have ever done before. And we freeze. We put up barriers. Like the Jews of Jerusalem, we become violent and vocal in our objections. Folks, maybe there's a better way. 
Could I suggest two things? A biblical response. Firstly, could we pray asking God to show us what our prior commitments are, the things that we hold dearer that prevent us from hearing Him. The Bible talks of them often as our idols. Can we pray asking God to show us the idols that still dominate our lives? Secondly, can we surrender these to Him and humbly submit ourselves to His will as He makes it clear to us in His Word by His Spirit. Give up our own agendas. Welcome His. This is the way to ensure the spread of the kingdom of God in our lives and in the community around us. This is the way that we can avoid the mistake of the Jerusalem Jews. As we read this passage, we get some very clear echoes of Luke's accounts of Jesus' last hours from chapter 23 of his gospel. Whenever Pilate presented Jesus and Barabbas to the crowd, the crowd shouted, away with him. Release Barabbas to us instead. And here in verse 36 of Acts 21, we read that the crowd that followed kept shouting, away with him. There's a real parallel going on here. Paul is cast very much in a similar role to his Savior and Lord 30 years before him. Actually, we're beginning a a section here where Luke's account of the life of Paul is going to mirror his account of the last days of Jesus very, very clearly. Both of these books, uh, or the two halves, I should say, of Luke's total book, end with trials. First of all, a religious trial in each case, and then trials before the political judicial systems of the day. And Luke, I think, includes these trials because he wants to, he wants to show us the reality of what God's people can expect in the world, and also to show us what the world can expect of God's people among them. Let me remind you very quickly of Jesus and the trials he experienced. In Jesus' first trial, he came before the high priest Caiaphas. Then he was handed over to the Roman governor Pilate, before he finally ended up before King Herod Antipas. So three trials for Jesus. Thirty years or so later, Paul's brought before, first of all, the high priest of his day, Ananias. Then he's going to proceed from there to appear before the Roman governor Felix, and then finally before king, another King Herod, this time Agrippa II. We're going to get a chance to look at these encounters over the next few weeks. But for now, it's important to see how Paul, the disciple of Jesus, follows in the footsteps of Jesus. We've seen this time and time again in Acts. This continuity between the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of his followers. But now we're seeing a continuity between the treatment that Jesus received and the treatment 
that his followers received after him. It's uncanny to see how clearly this fulfills exactly what Jesus had said. Listen to these words, Jesus' own words from Matthew chapter 10. He warned his disciples, be on your guard against men. They'll hand you over to the local councils. They'll flog you in the synagogues. On my account, you'll be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and the Gentiles. Jesus promised it would be this way, exactly this way. He not only promised it, he even explained it. He said that no servant is above his teacher. He simply meant, fellas, they've persecuted me. If you follow me, they will persecute you. That's how it's going to be. No servant is greater than his teacher. Folks, I think we need to give up for once and for all the illusion of Christian respectability. The illusion that says that we individually or that the church corporately can be acceptable, can be entirely at home in the world in which we live. It's just not possible. We have a choice to make. We can choose to please people or we can choose to please our Father in heaven. Jesus chose to please his Father. So did Stephen and Paul and many others after. And so must we. I don't know what you've made of Paul as we have been getting to know him in these chapters of of Acts. I find him part inspirational and part mad. Part mad. Mad for God. It's wonderful. Look at this, what happens in the rest of this chapter. We'll deal with it very, very quickly. Paul's life's in danger, we've said. He's a hairbreadth away from being killed by this angry mob. A Roman governor arrests him and tries to whisk him off to the barracks. Now, what do you do? You let the Roman governor get you offside safely. What does Paul do? Gets a word with the Roman governor and says, listen, can I talk to these guys? Before you take me away, can I talk to them? Paul looks at a crowd out to kill him, and he sees not the danger. He sees only what Paul ever sees. He sees an opportunity to share Jesus. He's going to talk to them about Jesus, and he's going to tell them about how he met Jesus. He's going to give his testimony, if you like. If you read the whole of the book of Acts, you'd find the story of Paul's testimonies recorded actually three times. This is the second. The first time it's recorded in Acts 9, just as a straight narrative of the events, this is how Paul met Jesus. This is the second occasion, and there will be a third occasion recorded in Acts 26, where Paul defends himself before King Herod Agrippa. There are a couple of things I want you to notice about Paul's testimony in general, and then we'll look at it in just a fraction of detail. 
Notice Paul's willingness to accommodate himself to this audience. He speaks in Aramaic. Luke stresses that with a double mention in 21 verse 40 and in 22 verse 2. This is a courtesy on Paul's part. He uses the language that he knows will give him most, uh, most of a, a credibility with his audience, a most attentive audience. Notice too how simple he keeps his language. Paul has a brilliant theological mind. He's got a brain much, much bigger than, than most of us who get any opportunity to preach. But he doesn't do what so many of us preachers try to do, and that's to impress people with his own intelligence and, and cleverness. He keeps it simple. He knows how to speak about Jesus in ways that are clear, even for a hostile audience. Folks, aren't those wonderful lessons in themselves? If we're going to share Jesus with people in our generation, then we need to choose carefully the language that we use. The truth is that the language of the Reformation theologians probably isn't going to be a very winsome language at the start of the 21st century. The language of the Shakespearean Bible translators probably isn't going to make a lot of sense to people who grew up on EastEnders and on Pokemon. We need to work hard to accommodate ourselves, not the gospel, but our words to the real people we encounter in our day-to-day sharing of Jesus. If we could do that as well as Paul did, moving through different cultures and different communities, able to share the gospel in one way here and in another way there and another way in this place, then we might find some of the, the reward in our sharing of the gospel that Paul did. Folks, maybe you'd pray for us. We're starting a Christianity Explored course this Thursday night, and this is a, this is a real case in point. We're going to have a group of people around us with questions about Jesus. Some of them will know their Bibles somewhat. Some of them may not know their Bibles well at all. Will you pray for us that God would give us, those of us who lead in this course, just a, a wisdom and a clarity and a way with our words that it's not theological mumbo-jumbo, but that it's a clear and winsome introduction to Jesus. Please pray for us uh, for Thursday night and for the weeks ahead. Just a couple more minutes to notice exactly what Paul says to this hostile crowd. He begins by identifying with them. That's the whole point of the first few uh, verses of what he says here. He says, you're Jews, so am I. I was trained by the famous Gamaliel, one of your best law teachers. You don't like Christians? Neither did I. I spent years going around searching for them, imprisoning them, men and women alike, even to the extent of killing some of them. Your religious leaders were were in charge of me at that time. They're the ones who prompted me, so you can ask them if you need a corroboration of my story.
Isn't that fascinating? There's a huge gulf between Paul and these guys. Obviously, they're trying to kill him. And yet, the first thing that Paul does is he says, I'm not so very different than you. Paul doesn't act all superior to the crowd before him. He doesn't tell them off. He tells them that he understands the deep emotions, the agendas that they carry. And it struck me as I I was looking at this that that's a very important part of any sensible evangelistic conversations. Sometimes I think we miss this stage, this stage of identification. Sometimes our conversations with non-Christians, we act as though we just can't remember their world anymore. We can't imagine what it's like not to know Jesus. We come across as people who were dropped in from outer space, as Jesus people who just have no idea about life without Jesus. Paul doesn't do that. Paul begins by establishing a commonality. He says, I understand your life because my life was once the same. We're not so different, you see. Paul's happy to begin with that first step, to tell the crowd how actually he's very much like them so that he can then move on and tell them how very different he now is. He doesn't talk very much about himself in the second half. He simply talks about God. It's all about what God has done to change him. He begins to talk about how he met Jesus. He talks about a bright light that shines on him and blinds him, a voice that speaks to him and instructs him, a Christian named Ananias who welcomes him and gives him back his sight, God who chooses him to be a witness of what he's seen, God who chooses him to be a messenger to the Gentiles. Sorry. It's all about God. Yes, I was like you, he says, but then the living God encountered me and he's changed me entirely. That's the gist of what Paul shares here. Friends, it's, it's at the very end here that the wheels fall off. Paul's hearing ends abruptly when he mentions again the Gentiles. When he tells these these patriotic, maybe I need to say racist Jews, that there's a place for others in the family of God. When he says that, the conversation ends. Folks, but what a wonderful testimony Paul has given here. He begins by speaking about himself, explaining that he's not so different than the crowd to whom he's speaking, but he moves on to point them to Jesus. He talks about how God encountered him, how the living Christ appeared to him, and how his life has been changed entirely. God has turned him around. God's given him a wonderful dignity now to take the gospel of Jesus to the world. No wonder Paul can't keep quiet. No wonder he wants to speak even to this crowd who would kill him if only they could. He's so grateful for the Savior. He's so grateful that he found Jesus. Folks, what do we make of a passage 
like this one here this evening. I found this a, a difficult passage to prepare to preach for you. In a, in a sense, it's, it's just a narrative account. I think we see here again the possibility that those of us who, who long to be God's people could end up being opposed to God. I think we need to hear that. We need to take that on board and we need humbly to come to God and say, Lord, any, anything that stands between us and your will, any idols in our lives, tear them from us and make us once more your people and only your people. And we see here as well, I think, how we might deal with opposition where we find it. Paul deals with it head on. He doesn't try to evade it or skirt it. Even in the opposition, Paul looks for and finds opportunities to share Jesus. God give us, each one of us, courage and grace to carry the gospel with us with the same enthusiasm and with the same reckless abandon as Paul did. Let us pray. Father God, we believe your word. We believe that if we do follow Jesus, if we desire to take his gospel to the world, then we will be opposed. We will face opposition. Lord, prepare us for that. Help us to make sure that we are never those who oppose the gospel. Clear us from our idolatry and our, our other commitments. But Lord, where we go in your name, where we find opposition, give us a wonderful, reckless abandon to Jesus Christ. Help us to, to look for those moments, those opportunities where we can speak for Jesus in the most unlikely places, perhaps before the most hostile of audiences. Lord, help us in those times to be every bit as open to your spirit as these early apostles were. Lord, thank you that none of this happens in our strength alone. Thank you that it's all simply a work of your spirit. Send us from this place this evening with a fresh conviction for the gospel of Jesus Christ and the new openness to your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.